0: Rick. I'm author of a book that was just released, let's see, late September of last year called The Suicide Solution. That's my latest book. I was co-authored with Dr. Daniel Amina of the Amen Clinics. And just a word about a book about suicide, <laughs> even ordering a book about suicide. It's really a book about anxiety, depression, and suicidality. It's an epidemic in our country right now, it's it's remarkable that in the middle of a pandemic, we have this sort of under the radar epidemic, right? Uh, merged with the pandemic. And it's an epidemic of suicide. We're on the verge of suicide becoming the number one killer of young people in America. We all know that, especially during the pandemic, the numbers of people experiencing depression and anxiety are off the charts. And... This is a book that, uh, that was a, a partnership between the psychiatrist and clinician and me, um, someone who uh, ponders questions about Jesus and is fascinated with the way Jesus interacts with people. And so it threads together the ways that Jesus interacted with people to bring health and wholeness into their life. Like, for instance, he, he wasn't always just, in fact, he never was just healing the physical ailments of people. He was also healing something else in them simultaneously. And how did he do that? And what can that inform us about our own life and how to live a whole life and filtered into that perspective as is a, is a clinical perspective and a research perspective on the, the most uh, cutting edge things we know about what helps to stave off suicidality, depression, and anxiety. So this book is a result of uh, just the dissonance I had inside uh, living in a count, uh, one of the the a county in America that has one of the highest suicide rates in the whole country, um, and just seeing the aftermath of so many suicides in the same kinds of rutted responses to that, and very little about prevention. So this is a book of prevention. It's it's how to live a whole life, and uh, based in the whole living of Jesus and how he invited others to live that life also. So it's called the Suicide Solution. It's it's a it's a great read if you simply want to live in a more holistic way that is based in the example of Jesus and informed by research. So there you have it. Um, and I'm also author of the Jesus Center Daily, a daily devotional that's been out for about a year now. And uh, if, you, if you want a daily appointment with Jesus uh, to meet him and discover him and uncover his truth and his beauty in a radically different way every day, <clears throat> this is the one for you. It's a great gift, especially at the start of the year. So check that out too. I'll have links to both of these. On the SoundCloud page for this episode. So again, it's episode two, the seventh season of this podcast, and right now we're in we're on the seventh episode of an ongoing focus I've had called "Jesus in the Real World." We're doing something a little different for the next two, maybe three episodes. We're we're going to focus on one particular spotlighted issue in our lives that um, that Jesus infiltrates and. Uh, brings redemption into. Um, so, we're going to focus on one particular thing for the next two or three episodes. And I'm calling it our moral compass. So, in our last episode, we explored what it means to be a new you here at the start of a new year when we're thinking about the ways in which we want to change and grow. And there's nothing that impacts who we are, what we are, and our impact on the world than our morality. That sounds like an old word, doesn't it? Morality. But our moral compass is, is really simply about how do we live a life that honors the truth and, and uh, avoids the, the lie? You know, how, how do we live outside of deception in our lives? How do we live in, a, in such a way that our life has its maximum impact on the people around us? how does that happen? So in, in past iterations of this as Christian people, we have simply thrown more effort at this. We've tried harder to be a better version of ourselves and that's not the gospel. Um, it's interesting if you, if you, if you take a a look at all of the writings of the apostle Paul, all the letters to churches and the, his brilliant manifesto in the book of Romans, uh, what you come away with is a man who is, was driven uh, by his own uh, like extensive will. Uh, I mean, who had more willpower than the Apostle Paul? He was not only learned it, he was dedicated and committed, and he was determined to meet his goals. Um, and that didn't change when he met Christ. Uh, he, he was still the same person. But the message of his letters is, well, that's not nearly enough. My own effort, your own effort is not nearly enough. In fact, it's impossible. The way, the way of Jesus is, is dependence, attachment. We get what he has when we are, when we are in him and he is in, in us. That's the message of Paul. So when we talk about morality or our moral compass, we're not talking about trying harder to be a better version of ourselves. We're talking about how, how do we ingest the moral compass of Jesus? What is his moral map anyway? And how do we live out of it in, in this world? It necessarily means that we become uh, what the Bible calls a peculiar people. <laughs> so uh, normally speaking, we would not want to be known as peculiar people, but in a, in a biblical sense, in a gospel sense, That's exactly what we want to be. We want to be people who, when others experience us, they get a taste of another world, another kingdom, that they get a taste of the kingdom of God that feels different than the kingdom of this world somehow. So let's dive in to the first episode on the moral compass. So here's a question for you. Let's Let's say, let's to take you back to, if, if you're married, let's take you back to your wedding day. So let's say you're about three days before your wedding day. Can you picture what that was like in your life? Let's say that you had decided to have an outdoor wedding. And um, of course, if you plan an outdoor wedding, then one of the big issues that grips with tension is what's the weather going to be like? I just officiated a wedding about a little over a year ago that was an outdoor wedding and um, unusual for that time of year, we had a ton of rain and leading up to the wedding day, the bride and the groom, but especially the bride were just gripped with anxiety. Like the weather report did not look good. Um, so in the end, the, the clouds parted, the rain stopped just enough to pull that wedding off if you could imagine going back to your own wedding day, uh, three days before the wedding, you have to decide whether or not you can stick with your plan to have an outdoor wedding. But here's the proviso. You do not have access to technology. You can't rely on a weather report or outside perspective of any kind. Well, How do you make your decision about the weather based only on your present observations, like right now? What would your strategy be? What would you have to do to make sure that you guessed right if you didn't have access to, to any kinds of helping aids besides your own observations? Well, you might have to study the present wetter, weather patterns and consider what you've known of in the past. How has, how has what you can observe now led to Weather patterns that you could predict even three days from now? What would your strategy be? Uh, And then, based on what you observe and discern in your strategy, could you predict what the weather conditions would be like three days from that? Well, uh, I think it would be very challenging, especially for those of us who are used to the tools that we have now that tell us what to expect. But back in the day of Jesus, they had none of those tools. They had acute observation and recognition of patterns that existed so that uh, like farmers uh, used, used to be in our culture, uh, they would use their stored knowledge to uh, try to understand whether the weather conditions would be good or bad. So what are all the factors that really that make this challenging, though? And what would you have to do apart from that outside perspective or apart from technology to make a better prediction? Well, here's why I'm asking this. Um, Jesus said a curious thing in Luke chapter 12. It has to do with uh, weather forecasting and morality, or you could say moral decision making. And it has huge implications for how we live our lives. So uh, here's here's what I'm just going to tease you. We're going to read the context of this a bit later. But let me just read you the end of this passage from Luke 12. And here Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, When you see clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, Well, here comes a shower. And you're right. And when the south wind blows, you say, Today's going to be a scorcher. And it is you fools. You know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. Why can't you decide for yourselves what is right? Let's just stop right there. Whoa. Why can't you decide for yourselves what is right? What an extraordinary question, Jesus asks. Uh, he's, he's saying on the face of it, that we should be able to decide for ourselves what is morally right, right? If we can understand how the weather works, why can't we pay attention to what is right and wrong and make the right choice relative to that? So um, the elephant in the room question is, well, it's self-evident, Jesus, that we often can't rely on our own compass. To understand right and wrong so why are you asking us this why are you acting as though our compass is trustworthy because we know it isn't we we we've made a mess of things as human beings we often don't choose what is right and here he's saying why can't you why can't you decide what is right so there are lots of deficits and challenges and pitfalls we face in deciding for ourselves what is right, we have to really consider what is primarily influencing our standards of right and wrong. And in a culture like the one we live in, the intake, our cultural intake, we know that people who are followers of Jesus, um, who are, um, who love Jesus and are, uh, read their Bible deep dutifully, are also taking in. Cultural inputs through Netflix or other streaming services that really are in complete moral contradiction from the kingdom of God. And yet we do these things as a matter of normal life. uh, Our norms have shifted. Does that mean that we should be, you know, uh, fasting from all? uh, conduits of culture in our lives. Um, no, but there's a tension here. Isn't there? Jesus is saying you can understand how weather conditions work and you can predict what those conditions are going to lead to. So why can't you study the things that you're taking into yourself, especially into your soul? Why can't you predict what will happen if you take those things in? Uh, Shouldn't you be able to make the right choice when you've decided, when you've accurately understood and decided what that will lead to if you uh, act that way or uh, ingest that thing? Why, why can't you decide for yourself? So um, this, is, this is what we want to dive into. We want to explore the context and prerequisites Jesus sets for this question he asks us why can't you decide for yourself what is right so uh first in this passage uh and we're going to dive into it in a second but in preceding this jesus is first warning his disciples to beware of the yeast of the pharisees so we know that yeast makes bread dough rise um, meaning this little addition you put into the dough it's really yeast is a fungus and once it's exposed in the dough, it, 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 it uh, starts reacting and it starts growing and it, may, and it makes the dough rise. So, Jesus, when he uses this metaphor, the yeast of the Pharisees, he's warning his friends that the teachings of these hypocritical religious leaders are like a dormant fungus that once it's activated radically changes the bread, but not in a good way. <laughs> so, he's saying, be awake to the yeast the deception of the pharisees because the deception by its very nature the reason it's it's it works as a deception is it looks like something good but isn't so the yeast looks like something you should add to the dough but actually the way that that yeast affects the dough is to pollute it to make it toxic a toxic poison so he's saying watch out for deception in general don't tolerate the addition of this deceptive, hypocritical yeast of the Pharisees. That's what precedes him saying to his disciples, why can't you decide for yourself? He's trying to wake them up to to be active consumers instead of passive consumers. Um, He wants them to be intentionally moral instead of drifting with the current of the culture. So let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 12. It's a a pretty good chunk that we're going to read from Luke 12, because we like to read the sort of segments of thought. Often we take these little portions, these verses or paragraphs out of scripture, and we don't really understand the context in which these things were said, and then we miss what Jesus was really trying to say. So we're going to read the whole context here. It's Luke 12, verses 35 to 59. Here we go. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you'll be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. Now, he may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward those servants who are ready. Understand this. If the homeowner knew exactly when the burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the son of man will come when least expected. Peter asked, Lord, is that illustration just for us or for everyone? And the Lord replied, well, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the full responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that servant has done a good job, there's going to be a reward. I tell you the truth, The master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks, oh, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants and partying and getting drunk? Well, the master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut that servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. And a servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. Look, I've come to set the world on fire, and I wish it was already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering in front of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No. I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And Jesus turned to the crowd and said, when you see the clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, here comes a shower. And you're right. And When the south wind blows, you say, today is going to be a scorcher, and it is. You fools, you know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. Why can't you decide for yourselves what's right? And when you're on the way to court with your accuser, try to settle the matter before you get there. Otherwise, your accuser may drag you before the judge who will hand you over to their officer who will throw you into prison. And if that happens, you won't be free again until you've paid the very last penny. Okay. So there you go. Luke 12. Let's take this passage and split it up into kind of three segments. And we'll focus on each of those segments. So the, the overarching question is, well, what's the point Jesus is trying to make in this section of his uh, challenge to his disciples? What's the point he's trying to make to them? And then why is he making that point? What's the point? And why is he making it? So let's, let's dive back into this passage. Again, we're thinking about our moral compass, the center of how we become people who live the truth, who live the values and truths of the kingdom of God. How do we become those people? We don't become those people by trying harder to be a better person. It comes in a different way. And that's what we can explore here with um, what Jesus is saying to his disciples preceding his interesting weather remark. So the question is, What's the point he's trying to make? So let's take the first segment uh, from verse 35 to verse 48. Here he's talking about being dressed for service and keep your lamps burning and be ready for the master when he returns the wedding feast. And, and the servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. He's going to you know, honor them. But these kinds of servants, they're, they're not prepared for his return because they already know when he's returning, they're they're prepared for his return because they're looking for him. They're paying attention. They're they're intentional people. So, um, and what is he talking about when he's talking about uh, the servant who who assumes his master won't be back for a while, and therefore begins to you know live out terrible morality beating other servants, partying, getting drunk. So the master returns unannounced, unexpected, and that servant is punished. Um, Why? Because that servant is only performing. That servant is only living out um, uh, the right instead of the wrong because they know they're being watched or they're accountable or they... They know their master is there. If they think the master is not there, then they don't live it out. Um, That means that they're shifting their moral center according to the circumstantial um, situation that they're in. So they are not uh, doing right, I guess you could say, because they are convicted about the rightness of that no matter what is happening around them, no. They shift their center according to the situation that they're in, and I guess you could say it in a more blunt way: they shift their moral center according to their expectation of getting caught or not. Well, that 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 violates um, sort of the uh, a value that comes through in everything Jesus says and does. He values uh, purity from the facade down to the core. So he wants like, for instance, uh, a car that um, looks like it can run when he opens the hood, he wants to see an engine in there, not an empty place where the engine is supposed to be. So yes, you look at the car and it looks like a car that, that could uh, drive out on the highway, but is it, does it have a, an engine in there that, that, um, confirms your expectations of what that car can do so a servant who only does the right thing because the master is there is not a trustworthy servant there's no trust that the master can invest in that servant the master is looking for someone who has embraced and gone all in with the truth of what he wants and that that master knows that whether he's there or not that servant is going to live out that truth that servant has intentionality and integrity in how, how they live their lives. That servant is not someone who's only doing the right thing because others know about it. It means getting fully on board with Jesus instead of performing on some level. And another way of saying that is instead of trying harder to be a good Christian, that won't cut it in in Uh, when circumstances um, are so arrayed that they uh, punish you for doing the right thing, well, then you're not gonna do the right thing um, because you're not all in. But if you're all in, even if you're punished for doing the right thing, even if it costs you for doing the right thing, you're going to do the right thing because you've ingested truth. You, you, You simply can't live with yourself, If you live out something that isn't true, it's the difference between living a performance-based reality and a core morality, meaning that the core of who you are has changed. It's different. You don't have to work at it. It's just the fruit of who you are. So, um, uh, again, he's painting a picture here. That undermines the kind of morality that tries harder to be better. No, he's pointing out that won't work um, because that's dependent on someone constantly making you accountable for that. Um, And even then, if you have someone who is trying to make you accountable to that, you find workarounds, don't we? (laughs) But what he's saying is he wants something that is, uh, that what it appears to be on the outside is on the inside. That is the, is the morality that Jesus is not only reflecting, but inviting people into. So let's look at the second part of this section. This is from verses 49 through 53. Here, after he, ta- after he goes into great length about the, the good servant and the bad servant and what, what he's expecting out of those who have committed to serving him and following him, Uh, using this metaphor of the master coming back and finding the servant, either doing what he expected or not. After he says all that, he he makes a little turn in verse 49. He says, I've come to set the world on fire, and I wish it was already burning. (laughs) What a scary thing. I have terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I'm under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. Do you think then? that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, we call him the Prince of Peace, but here he's saying, no, that's, that's not what I've come to do. I've come to divide people against each other. Wow, what? Is this Jesus? Nice lamb-carrying Jesus who's saying this? He says, from now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me, two against, two in favor, three against, father against son, son against father, and so on. What is the point of him emphasizing this division when he's talking about living from a moral core, core or following a moral compass that reflects the kingdom of God? what? Why does he talk about division? Well, reminded about um, how C.S. Lewis described Jesus in his character Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, famously Lewis describes Aslan as not a safe lion. He's safe, he's good, but he's not safe. Not safe, but good. That's how he describes Jesus in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. It's a brilliant description of Jesus, good, but not safe. So, goodness becomes not safe when it stands for what is morally true in the midst of uh, a, a morally fuzzy environment. It means that you, know, you probably experienced this yourself when you have stood for something that is true and good and paid the price for it. Um, Maybe even you have stood for something that is true and good and lost a friendship over it or created tension in a close relationship because of it. Um, And maybe that tension results because of the dogmatic way you approached it, that could be. We often do things, we do do good things in a messy way. (laughs) So sometimes our messy way has impact. On others. But what Jesus is saying here is that this, he, he came to bring a message that if we embrace it and go all in with it, it's definitely going to divide our relationships. It's going to uh, expose and uh, surface and challenge our moral norms. It, it's going to point out um, what isn't pleasing. So, uh, uh, I asked this question of some young people in our group, and one of them said, Jesus didn't come to please or appease. <laughs> Jesus didn't come to please or appease. Isn't that a great way of thinking about the mission of Jesus? And it helps us to understand when he says, I have come to set the world on fire, wish it was already burning. He's not coming to please us, he's not coming to appease us, he's coming to plant goodness in the soil of what is ugly. And that goodness is going to be distinctly different than its environment. So um, we think, we assume that truth unites us, Um, but actually it divides us because it asks us to serve something higher than our circumstantial needs or our man-made ideologies. It asks us to serve something that comes in conflict with those things. There is a kingdom of this world, and there is a kingdom of God. And Jesus said, I came to help you understand and then live in the kingdom of God. And it is different than the kingdom of this world. The norms of the kingdom of God are at odds with the norms of the kingdom of this world. Therefore, the two are going to be in conflict, and I want there to be conflict. I want you to live as a peculiar people, a weird people, people that live with the smell of the kingdom of God on them, which means that, that those who have ingested and defend and live out the values of the kingdom of this world are not going to like it when you live differently. It's going to uh, poke at Their own dissonance about the how they live that's what it will do because it's it's inconvenient to have someone live the truths of the kingdom of god in everyday life because it exposes the ways in which others are not um and that's what causes the division jesus is saying so there's this second section about um families getting split apart well He's trying to say here that there is a higher truth to live by, a a deeper family to live in than just the family that you were born into. All right, let's take that last section. Uh, That's verse 54 through the end of the passage. And this is the one we've already read before when he uses this second metaphor of uh, weather forecasting. (laughs) You know, if you see clouds in the West, here comes a shower, the south wind blows, it's going to be really hot. Well, you're paying attention. Um, And that's why I can call you fools because if you can pay attention to the weather and and because it's important to you, well, why can't you pay attention to the embedded culture of your present time? Why can't you discern what is toxic poison in that culture and, and make decisions based on that why can't you do that when you can do that with the weather? Um, so he, he's simply saying here to live intentionally, pay attention, be cognizant, differentiate yourself from your surrounding culture, be separate from the cultural interpretations of what's right. So Jesus says not, let me point you to the truth here. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is saying, attach yourself to me. Be in me, and I in you. And you will, I will then share with you truth by my very being. So when he invites us into relationship with him, he's really inviting us to share in what he has, And what he has is embedded in him, the morality of the kingdom of God. And so when he says, why can't you decide for yourselves what is right? He's implying that you can't decide for yourselves what is right, because A, you're not paying attention, B, you're not differentiating from that once you have paid attention, and C, you're not depending upon me as the standard for truth. You're depending on something else for the standard of truth. Why aren't you, another way of saying this is, why aren't you paying attention to me? Why aren't you paying attention to the kingdom of God? Um, You could take this both ways. You can say, why aren't you paying attention to the influence of the culture around you and making intentional decisions about what you will ingest and the other side of that coin is, why aren't you paying attention to me at a more ridiculous level and paying attention to the standards and practices and embedded truths of the kingdom of God? Why aren't you more intentional about it? That, that's what I'm going to leave us with today. And then we'll explore the next time. Um, the boundaries of the kingdom of God morality that Jesus lays out in the sermon on the Mount. So sermon on the Mount is a fascinating addition into the, the beginning of Jesus's ministry, because it's, it's one of the only times where he just speaks at great length without dialogue to a large crowd. And he does it at the start of his ministry. And I think he does it for shock and awe. He wants people to hear what the truths in the kingdom of God are like and how, how incredibly contrasting they are with their commonly accepted norms in the kingdom of the world. He wants them to hear the difference between these things and, and feel like at the end of it, oh my gosh, he just painted a picture of life that is radically different than what I've slid into in my everyday life. He wants people to understand that there's two kingdoms working here and two sources of truth, and he's inviting us to pay attention to the source of all truth and pay attention to the sources of all deception around us, and then make wise decisions based on what we've observed. Why can't we decide for ourselves what is right? Because We are confused about what's right. Sometimes we adhere to what Jesus says and lives is right. And sometimes we adhere to ourselves. Sometimes we treat Jesus as God. And sometimes we treat ourselves as God. And it creates confusion and situational shifts. It's the situational shift that Jesus really hated about the Pharisees. The fact that they lived a morality that worked for them depending on the circumstances. He hated that. It was hypocritical. He wanted something he called perfect. <laughs> be perfect as my father is perfect. What he really meant there, as we've talked about, what he really meant there is that his, his father was fully himself. So be fully yourself. Don't, don't shift who you are according to the circumstantial reality that you're in. That. That isn't the kingdom of God. So next, in the next episode, we'll we'll explore what sort of moral map Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount, to give us a picture of what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. And then in the last segment we'll do on morality, we'll explore how the early church translated this relational system of morality that uh, Jesus was inviting them into. How did they live that out in everyday life and practical living? Uh, and we'll get some, some ideas and some handles to grab onto in our own everyday life, not so that we can live, as the Pharisees did, a performance-based uh, morality, uh, meaning they, they lived that morality one way when others were watching and another way when they weren't. Not, not for that, but how can we live something that goes from our outside to our inside and there's no variation? between those two. So that's what we'll explore in the third uh, segment of this little mini series within a series. So, all right, gang, that's it for, that's it for this episode. This is again, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. It's a podcast produced by ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Google play or iTunes or wherever you get your, your podcasts. And we'll see you again next episode.